This is The Union, the intersection between people, apps, and AI. We'll inspire and challenge you as we ask questions, uncover insights, and share inspiring stories about digital ecosystems and automation. Hi, everyone. I'm Scott King. I am joined by Chris Krause, and we're going to talk to you about the future of RPA and robotic process automation. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to go through some processes that are best fit for RPA. We're going to talk about future automation capabilities, low-code platforms, and then we're going to take you through a process example. We've chosen employee onboarding because I think everybody can familiarize themselves with the onboarding process. It would be the exact opposite if you're offboarding an employee. But And then we're going to talk to you a little bit about what the future is in our perspective and how we're going to use automation to produce business outcomes. So, Chris, thanks for uh, joining me today. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about kind of our mission, right? So everyone kind of takes like a myopic look at automation. They take a look at all of the different things that they're doing today. And maybe they're trying to make it go a little bit faster. They're actually automating what employees is doing. Is this on path with you know what we're talking about with RPA? Yes, because you're talking about task automation. What is an individual doing at their desktop? You know, the desktops have changed. The problem is that's not going to accelerate how a company does its business. You know, the office of the CIO, CTO, in their case, they're not looking at doing one task faster. They need to transform how they run their business. And this is not the way we're going to get there. Transforming a business means we need to look at the outcome. How are we doing like people calling in to place orders and matching them, we don't call and place orders over the phone anymore. We give them mobile apps. We give them web apps. We've actually changed the way people interact to say buy things. That's an outcome. That's where we're actually transforming our business itself. I like it. And I think it's, from my perspective, it depends on who you're talking to. They may or may not understand outcome depending on their role in the organization. You know, the Maybe the higher level you go, like you said, the C-suite, understands that, you know, basically I want to take, you know, a customer journey from A to B, but if I'm inside the business, you know, A to B, it's a different perspective for me. Right. It's just the task. Desktop. What do I do is my daily operations. Yeah. All right. So, so our friends over at HFS Research have provided some data on what the total overall spend on RPA is. And you can see from the years going from 2016 to this year in upwards of $4 billion. But the the percentage of the spend is quite a bit more on services. I think the, the good news here, Chris, is that people are spending money. They are investing in automation because it's valuable, but maybe it's a little askew. Any any opinions on that? Yeah, I think it is because you know the return on investment can't all be I spend a dollar to get a dollar. We need more acceleration. So if we need lots of services to build something, that really is cutting into our long-term ROI. And so we need to think about how are we actually approaching robotic processes? So companies have done this a lot. They think that, say, our best processes are very static in nature. They're high volume. They're very high repetition. They're rules-based and low exceptions. So that way... Once you automate it, you can run it over and over again and get to those higher levels of ROI versus spending all your time editing and changing processes. 
And so there's some very specific rules we've set out of how do you actually approach what processes are good candidates for RPA. So any process that basically just runs, you know, like a machine, right? So it just runs all the time and any kind of change introduces a delay. So just change, make change minimal, right? Yes. All right. What about, uh, you know, low code, right? So low code is becoming popular, no code platforms. What's, what's best for these? Well, they are similar in the fact that they are dealing with SDLCs. So it's like I have a development environment, I have a test environment, a production environment. But the problem is every time you make a change to a bot or they make a change to a low-code platform, you're literally throwing something on the backlog. So all of a sudden, I've got more requests in my backlog. My demand for changes is going to outpace my ability to deliver because these people building these are actually skilled labor. Like they're not just every person in the organization. They're actually skilled labor who understand how these tools work and actually how to code and how software development lifecycles work. So, you know, low code gets a little bit different on the other hand. Low code, we talk about being a citizen developer, so everybody should be able to do this. But in reality, you still have to learn how to code. There's a lot of development skills that you have when using those platforms. Okay, so you said the... Demand, so uh, the automation demand outpaces the supply to automate things, and that gives us the the citizen developer, and that gives us the low-code platforms, right? These are supposed to solve all the problems, right? Yeah, and they do if your application is something you only do on your desktop. If it's just an Excel macro and you're dealing with it. But in reality, the concept of low-code is we want to build small apps that departments use. So all of a sudden, I've got 20 people in my department, and they have 15 apps they have to use, and they constantly switch between them to do something. So it's actually making it much harder and complicated on users, because the more applications we give them, the more training they have to have. And then when we want to change them, we have to retrain people. So it's actually not helping us in the long run if we give people 50 apps and say, switch between these to accomplish everything you need to do every day. It's really hard for people to know how to do those things. The training is un- insurmountable. So if it increases complexity, we've got the higher number of apps, what would that do with technical debt, right? So technical debt well, normally, like we talked about, goes in the backlog earlier. Who owns the technical debt for a low-code app? So everybody does because you've got technical debt from the developers or the citizen developers making changes. When the low-code applications upgrade, you have to regenerate. When you have changes to your databases and your app servers and the code generated on that side, every and people on IT have changes. It, it is something everybody feels together. Interesting. Interesting. We'll see how that, that works out. So we took a look at this earlier this year. We took a look at 800 different software development and application development jobs on LinkedIn. So normally on LinkedIn, these are your enterprise jobs with Fortune 100 or SMB businesses. And we scraped all the requirements for application developers, low-code developers, and RPA developers. And we really wanted to see if the platforms, you know, were easier to use or they required less skill. You know, as a broad brush, they're all relatively the same, Chris. Uh, They require anywhere from, you know, two to nine years of experience they all require different levels of JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and SDLC knowledge. I think that's the big one that you talked about earlier, that any change is a code change and it goes in the backlog. All of these things 
have SDLC requirements. So that means that, you know, it's a big process to change things. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is we say that, you know, RPA tools are easier to use. There's no cutting, but we actually require higher levels of MBAs and business degrees to actually use them. Right. So it's they when it's actually a double edged sword, you have to be, you know, business savvy, but then also coding savvy. And like you mentioned, the amount of skills and application development that you need is really high, you know, for SQL, APIs, SDLC, they are really more developers than citizen developers, I think. Yeah, it would be interesting to see which types of these people produce the most technical debt. So since we talked about, you know, that earlier with the backlog, because I can imagine myself being a citizen developer I think I would I would just create technical debt like like crazy, right? Because I'm not a skilled developer to think about, you know, how to reuse containers and reuse code like that. I would just do everything, you know, all over again. Someone's going to walk behind you and the term we use is refactor your code, yeah. which means you're just going to rewrite it. <laughs> they're going to refactor me is what they're going to do. So, you know, we talked about automation and outcomes. So let's onboard an employee. Let's talk about employee onboarding as an outcome. So these are processes that span multiple departments and teams and systems. Chris, what are we looking at here? So this is something you would normally think of as a project plan of how do we onboard an employee. And then you have stages and you have tasks. And we would create requirements documents and PDDs to actually develop these. So if we think in the very specifically apply some RPI, apply some bots, or build an actual low-code platform, what are we going to do? Well, we'll take one step of the process, and then this has 10 parts to it. We'll break it apart, and then we need to apply the rules. For a bot to work well, we need something that's high volume, repeatable, low exceptions, and rules space. So even though there's 10 steps, we'll pick two of these to actually automate. So we can solve only a small part of this process. So even if we solve a couple cards on each one of those steps, there's still a lot of white space or gaps in actually getting to the end-to-end process. What happens when we have a long-running process where an employee is assigned a training class and they have two weeks to complete it? Or they we need to have a attestation signed. We need to have actual cybersecurity training done the first day before they can get their, their logins to the systems and that. So there's a lot of this automation in these steps that actually are required. So when you step back and don't look at the small task details, look at that concept of we need to figure out everything that happens before the employee starts, what happens the first week, that's a larger outcome itself. And we that means we're going to have to orchestrate not just task automation. Maybe it's orchestrating people and notifications that they need to be added to systems We need to inject, say, into the LMS that they have training classes they need to do and then collect the signatures that they've assigned. They've listened to our policies on cybersecurity and phishing and smishing and all those things. We need something to orchestrate across people, systems, and AI when it's helpful for building rules itself. We can't build enough apps. We, Like we said before, we have outpaced our demand to build enough apps and bots to do things. We need to think about how can we orchestrate across the things we have, but then orchestrate people, systems, and AI to actually accomplish the end-to-end process itself. 
And so that's a different thought process, right? Is it possible for software to notify someone that there's a human task they need to do, monitor and get it back? Well, of course, that's what we call, you know, intelligent automation and orchestration of those. So literally we're saying, if you've got multiple tasks, let's orchestrate those and then make the software responsible for the checklist. So software responsible for making the bots do what they need to do. But then after that, have the software responsible to notify people that things have been accomplished so they can go to the next stage or ask them to verify that the signatures are on documents and so forth. So when we think about automation, it shouldn't be limited to just the things we can do at a desktop or just in a single app. We want to get the end-to-end process, all 10 steps for this one card, and then all seven cards for the week one documented in the software. So the software controls the process itself. That gives us audit, gives us repeatability. And then whenever we change the process, we just change the automation and the software versus retraining every employee. There's a new process that's come in. So Chris, this is like automating the automation, right? So because there's not everything can be automated, I guess, you know, the office procedures and rules training, like I still have to take this training class, but maybe, you know, the software can ask me and remind me and, you know, make sure that I take it in time for some type of compliance policy, maybe. So my manager doesn't have to bug me about it. Well, sometimes it's like, do we want to make sure that you've done your cybersecurity training before we give you access to the internal network drives and give you access to your email. Because if you've had your training on how to identify phishing and smishing and those things, before you get start getting spam in your email, there's a better chance you won't click a bad email, right? So sometimes that's what you want the software to confirm the completion of a human action before it can automate, say, adding the person to the email system, adding them to the SharePoint and things like that. So there's actually an order in which the software can handle to make sure things always happen in a consistent way and they're auditable. Okay. I got a smishing attempt today from John, our boss. Did you get one? I did. Yep, I did. Okay. That's how that happens. All right. Yeah. So orchestrating and automating the complete process across people, systems, and AI. You know, I, I see some roles here for HR. IT ops security and some systems and maybe some workplace assistance, you know, tie this back to our project plan for onboarding an employee that we looked at earlier. So one of the biggest challenges with, say, larger processes in organization is when they actually span organizational boundaries. You know, in the today world, people say, well, I sent them an email to notify them. Or, you know, I uploaded an Excel spreadsheet. They're supposed to check it to see that we have new employees coming in. They're going to need badges and so forth. So we want to actually provide interaction with people, say, ask them for actions, give them information, have them confirm the same way we would interact with an API to get data or connect an action in the backend systems. And that way, the software will know when people have done their steps and the software doesn't care that they, you know, IT uses Slack to message and that accounting uses Teams. It'll just send them the notifications in the right channel and then wait for the responses back. So we really do think about orchestration. People is something valid you can orchestrate. You can, you know, and the good thing is software can say, well, if they didn't respond in four hours, escalate so someone else can handle this. Don't let things get dropped off in someone's email because they're too busy or they're on vacation, things like that. 
The other thing is we can actually put a human interface into all these processes themselves. You know, automated workplace assistants are helpful because they actually allow you to interact on human terms, not learning 15 apps to do accomplish a job, right? We want to hide all those apps and complexity behind the automation platform itself. All right, that's interesting, especially the, the picture we looked at earlier with the operators. There's no way that you would try and do it that way when you look at this whole project plan, because there's way, you know, the operators were just, you know, basically plugging and playing, right? The human switch. Uh, mm-hmm. There's way more than that, especially the delay. Like, I really like the delay and escalation uh, example that you provided. So, you know, we provided just one example, for, you know, what the, an automated outcome means or a process. But, you know, you can think about anything in your business from uh, standard operating procedures, cybersecurity, customer engagement, customer service, any kind of compliance and risk procedures. Uh, those are really popular. But it's just, you know, we provided one example. All There's tons of examples out there. If you want to talk to us and you have a, an idea or an example that you want to talk to us about, please contact either Chris at, uh, at, or I at Krista, and uh, we'd be happy to help you automate your business and produce better outcomes. So with that, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to The Union. I hope it was insightful and caused you to think about how you can influence technical advancements at your company. Please subscribe to the Union Podcast Series on your favorite podcast player to listen to past and future episodes. If you have a question for any of us or have a suggestion for the show, please email me at scott at Thanks for listening.